and a one, a two, a one, two, three, four. <laughs> Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. I'm Hannah. And I'm Melissa. And we've drummed up something special for you today. Oh my god, did she just make a pun? <laughs> she did because this episode is all about drumming biomechanics. And integrating biomechanics with music. We had such a great conversation with Professor Nadia Azar, who's Associate Professor of Kinesiology at the University of Windsor. And for the first time on Boom, we learned about the biomechanics of drumming and playing other musical instruments. She shares her findings on the mechanics of how playing-related injuries occur and how to prevent them, along with her own journey through biomechanics and music, and how we can learn from those, how it translates to other areas in the field. And it was just a really, I just threw one of my she drumsticks. lost a drumstick. I lost a drumstick. I was so excited to talk about the You were holding it so loosely, just like she told us to. <laughs> she did. Yeah, my drumming biomechanics are, are so good so that my drumsticks fly out of my hand. <laughs> Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. Where we have biomechanics on our minds. Boom. 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 This podcast is brought to you by Sage Motion. Sage Motion enables movement training through wearable haptic feedback. Sign up for a demo at sagemotion.com slash demo and write boom in the comment box. Before we get started, we want to ask that if you enjoy boom, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us, and share boom with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. For this episode, especially maybe someone in the music industry mm-hmm. or just a musician. We're so grateful for our listeners, and we want to give a special shout-out to Pratham Singh, who requested that we cover the biomechanics of music in one of our episodes. So if there's a topic you like, just tell us, and we'll find someone to talk about it. Exactly. And then we'll give you a shout out. So nothing gets better than that. Really. <laughs> we also wanted to shout out to Joe Kagumba, who also recommended Nadia, but it was actually after we had already scheduled the interview. So we are really glad we are so in sync for this interview. And after talking with Nadia, we really understand why so many people want to hear from her. Um, Joe also left us a note that said, thanks for putting together such an interesting platform for biomechanics and bioengineer practitioners. Your team's content has definitely given me insights to the field and allowed me to explore research that I otherwise would not have been exposed to. So thank you for the note and for the recommendations. We love hearing from you, and it really made us smile. Yeah, it did. You can't tell, but we are smiling We right are, now. yes. Huge grins. <laughs> and what will make you grin even more is a bit of boom that Anna has, has to share. <gasps> what a transition. <laughs> bit of boom. So since we talk about so much music and biomechanics on this episode, sort of the body side of music, Mm. you know, our body, how our body interacts with music, I'd like to open with some thoughts on how music affects our brain, which we touch on lightly, but not like fully in in the episode. Yes. There's this nice review article called Musical Education in the Brain by Anita Collins, and I actually discovered it. It was written back in 2014. I discovered it because there was this awesome TED education video made from the article. So it's a really nice translation of the findings of the article. So we'll okay. just put the link. You can check out the link in the description. Yes. 
But the article summarizes what we know from two decades of neuroscience research on how the brain processes music, how it affects our emotions, and how it changes our brain development, right? There's all these things that, you know, mm. I feel like I've always heard, like, play your baby Mozart and, all, yeah. you know, expose them to music early. And it turns out it's true. There are many benefits of music education. Mm. Here they're looking specifically not just listening to music passively, but actually playing an instrument. So most of you talk about learning to play the drums yes. and sort of coordinating your brain and body. It turns out there's a lot of great effects for your brain in doing that. You can improve your memory, both long-term and short-term. It helps you to learn language faster and more efficiently. And improves areas related to executive function. So think of areas of your brain that are responsible for planning, setting goals, attention detail. And not only those brain areas, but also increases the brain plasticity or flexibility of the brain to change. So ability of it to learn for longer and later. Right. And that's like such an important thing, too. It's also because I noticed, too, it's harder, I think, to learn just like similarly to harder to learn languages as you're older. I think it's probably harder to learn instruments as well. But learning as a child or really set your brain up to be able to to learn those types of things. Right. And that point actually reminds me of one of my favorite sort of sentences in the article was that they say one study suggests that the human brain, particularly at an early age, does not treat language and music as strictly separate domains, but rather treats language as a special case of music. Interesting. Right? So it's like somehow we can process music first, but then as we're learning language, we're just like, it's like under that umbrella. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about language as a type of music. It was also cool that, like, they were able to do these studies, right? Like, that mm-hmm. we can even learn these things using special techniques like magnetic resonance imaging to see what brain activity is actually mm-hmm. happening while we're playing or listening to music and what areas of the brain are active. It may be unsurprising they looked at musicians versus non-musicians, but there's more activity and at a higher magnitude when musicians are listening to music than when non-musicians are. And this, this was distinct for music as an art versus other forms of art for these people. Wow. So that was cool, too. And just shows that, like, you know, sort of that practicing does something more than just with your muscles. It's doing something actually in your brain and causing all these awesome benefits. I think I'd encourage you to look at the TED animation or read the article to learn more. Mm-hmm. We'll link both of those. And, yeah, it was just an awesome study. And now you'll get to see that's how the brain processes music. But now you'll get to learn how the body is affected yes. by music. Yeah. It's really making me just think bigger about all the amazing things that music does. It's your dancing, it's your moving, <laughs> you're playing instruments, you're moving around, and then your brain's also doing awesome things too and growing. So Amazing. Music. Yeah. Bless for music. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's jump to our interview. Today, we are talking with Professor Nadia Azar. Nadia is the Associate Professor of Kinesiology at the University of Windsor. Thank you for being here with us today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, we're really excited to get into your research and more about what you do. But let's go back to the beginning and start with, when did you first know you wanted to be a biomechanist? I don't know that I have an answer to that. I was always kind of drawn to the biomechanics aspect of kinesiology. I had kind of debated 
many different fields, engineering being one of them. And I was just kind of always drawn to it. And I was just really interested in the mechanics of, of human movement. And I just kind of stuck. And so I, you know, I went on to do my master's more from, well, occupational biomechanics. So like a, the ergonomic slant to that. And then continued in my PhD with with a bit of a transition into engineering, but it was biomedical engineering. So there was a really nice overlap between kinesiology and engineering. It was really kind of like the perfect spot. But I don't know. I, I guess once I got into my undergrad, I was started to be drawn towards the ergonomics and biomechanics classes. Was there anything specific in those classes like that you loved or loved learning or that like what made you stay? Like I think most people who go into kinesiology, I went in thinking I was probably going to be a physiotherapist. And determined that I I didn't necessarily want the clinical side of it, although nowadays I kind of wish I did have that too. I was drawn to the concept of like helping people rehabilitate from injuries or prevent injuries from happening. And so, you know, to do that, you have to know how they happen. And that's the mechanics of injury. And so that's just sort of where I ended up going down that rabbit hole and staying there. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for sharing all that with us. I think that is such an interesting draw about the field. And then it's cool to see these different overlaps between yeah, kinesiology and engineering. So you like have different backgrounds, but you can see that overlap and definitely support each other. Can you tell us a little bit about the current projects going on in your lab? Yeah, we have several going on right now, which is fantastic. So right now, all but one of them involve drummers, because that's kind of our our main focus. So yeah, which is really fun. So we have finally been able to resurrect the heart rate and energy expenditure during live performance study. So I go to shows, I put body media armbands and a polar heart rate monitor on the drummers. They wear them during the show. And then I go and analyze the data, which is super fun for so many reasons. So that's finally back up and running. Are the armbands where you're getting energy expenditure? Are you estimating that from heart rate? Typically, you don't usually use them um, like oxygen consumption masks and things, but I'm sure that they don't want to be wearing those <laughs> during the show. Performing. Although I've had a few who were like, I'll wear whatever you want. So ideally, yes, we would use the Cosmed or some other like similar, you know, metabolic, like that route for estimating energy expenditure because it is the most valid way of doing it. But I use the armbands because they are easy to wear during a show. They're not distracting. There's no cables. There's like, they forget that they're wearing them once they're on. So, you know, there may be some trade-offs with accuracy there. Certainly there would be trade-offs with doing it through heart rate predicted energy expenditure as well. There are some issues with that. So knowing that, but these are what I feel are the most appropriate way to do it for given the parameters of the data collection setting that I'm working in. So we use, we use those armbands. That's the one study. We're also doing one where we are monitoring vibration exposure while playing the drums. So we attach an accelerometer to the back of the hand and they play a few songs. Then we move it to the other hand because we only have the one that conforms to the ISO standards for monitoring vibration. So we have to do each hand individually, but they play and we get vibration exposure data that way. We're doing one where we're monitoring muscle activation patterns while they're playing of the upper limb and the trunk muscles. And then we just started um, recruiting for the drum set instructor interview study where I'm interviewing drum teachers about the reasons why they do or don't teach their students about 
playing related injuries and how to prevent them and what sort of supports they feel that they might need to either start doing it or to do a better job of it. So we just had our first sets of interviews this week for that one. So finally getting that one going too. So you're collecting so many different, so you're looking at energy expenditure, um, you said muscle activations and vibration patterns. Where do you see this data going after that? Like, what are you learning from that data and what are you applying it to, I guess, what would be the next steps after that? So the energy expenditure and heart rate data was a bit of a gateway. It kind of came out of nowhere for that study, sort of landed in my lap as an opportunity and ran with it. But it turned into a really neat way to showcase how hard drummers are actually working up there and how physical and physically demanding their job actually is. And so that kind of translates into, you know, here's how hard they're working. Well, that comes with all kinds of ramifications for injuries and injury prevention. So that kind of feeds into that sort of like an awareness raising study. And the drummers also love it because they get their own personal information about their own physiology while they're playing. So it's kind of, you know, good for individuals participating. The other studies, what I'm hoping to show with those, particularly the vibration study, we're trying to hone in on some of the mechanisms for the injuries that we see reported most often. So a few years ago, I did an online survey asking drummers all over the world about their experiences with playing related musculoskeletal disorders. And I asked them whether they had a diagnosis from a medical professional, and if so, what was it? And the most common ones that came up were tendinitis and carpal tunnel syndrome. So vibration exposure is a known risk factor for those two injuries. So I wanted to document it so that we can start making the links between where some of these injuries might be coming from. So we've done some studies with 3D kinematics of the upper limb to look at posture and repetition. Repetition's obvious. We didn't need a study for that. It's pretty easy to see <laughs> repetition in a drummer. You know, we've documented extreme postures in the wrist, which is, you know, clearly uh, indicative of, or, or certainly could be related to the development of those injuries. The vibration is another piece that could be leading to that as well. So knowing, again, you can't prevent an injury until you know how it happens. And so if we're starting to make these links of here's where this might be happening, now we can start taking steps to helping people prevent them. So whether that's through equipment design or playing technique or, you know, different recommendations for other things that we can make, we might be able to start help prevent these injuries or reduce their severity. And by making people aware of them, that these, these are possibilities, when they start feeling things happening in their wrists, they're less likely to ignore it and more likely to take it seriously and think, okay, I, I need to do something about this. So that's, that's the hope for where this goes. I'm curious with that last point, and you, I love that you said you were interviewing instructors to learn why they might not be you know, sharing this information with people they're teaching. How about those instructors or, or regular drummers? Like, are they aware? Like, what is the awareness level currently around these injuries? The interview study came out of, again, some of the data from that survey. So I had asked the participants whether they had taken formal lessons and if so, whether they had been taught anything by their instructors about injuries and injury prevention. And overwhelmingly, the answer was no. I think 80, around 80%, 82% of the participants, and we're talking about like 830 people. So it was, it was a big response pool. So 82% said they had taken formal lessons, but only about 42% of that 82% <laughs> said they were taught anything about it. 
And when I dug down into the data further, the ones who were taught about it were reporting injuries at lower rates than the ones who were not taught about it, even if they had been taking formal lessons. So just taking lessons was and like learning proper technique was not necessarily enough to prevent an injury. There was this link between a, a teacher who specifically addressed it with them and reductions in reporting injury. So I wanted to know why teachers weren't teaching about it. It was a cross-sectional study, so I can't say cause and effect, but there seemed to be this link that people who were taught specifically about injury prevention reported injuries less often. So my thinking was, well, I need to know why they're not doing it so that I can help them do it (laughs) or somebody can help them do it. Is it because they themselves weren't taught anything about it? So they don't know. Is it because they don't know where to get resources? Is it because they, you know, would it help to have this being taught in music education programs so that they have resources and knowledge going into teaching? I don't know the answer yet. So that's why I wanted to talk to instructors specifically about why do they or don't they and what do they need to be able to do it? Yeah, it's nice to sort of quantify that more and then I feel like that can lead to an easier conversation and and just better dissemination of that information. And sometimes I think it's just like you're saying, as simple as not simple, but, you know, just sharing how common these injuries are and also that like it's not necessarily normal to feel pain or be in pain. Like I think sometimes like we just assume like we're just like, oh, that's just what happens. But there are actually things that you can do. And for me, it's so interesting to hear how you're quantifying these mechanics of drumming and how they're relating to injury. And I think that must be really motivating for people too to then know mm-hmm. that like, oh, there actually there are things that I can do to help prevent this. And there are reasons why this is happening. So it's really exciting to see that. I've been fortunate to work on some really fulfilling research projects in my career. But this one in particular is, this is one of two that have been like the most, I would think personally fulfilling, I would say, because the group that I'm working with is so invested in it. I mean, for these studies, I have rarely had trouble recruiting one or two, especially during COVID and, you know, some that where they have to come to Windsor, but I'll post about a study and I'll get responses from people in the UK and in Texas. And they were, oh, I'd love to participate. Can I do it? It's like, well, you got to come to Windsor. So, and you know, obviously I don't have the funding to bring them all in. I wish, but uh, they're really invested. They're really excited about it. I get a lot of, you know, I can't believe someone is finally studying this. This is so great. You know, that sort of thing. So it's really nice. And it's really nice to hear from drummers who are like, you know, I read this and now I know about this or now I can teach this to someone or they just they appreciate the information. And it's really nice to work with a group who's just that motivated to be a part of it and contribute to it, too. So I love when the like tool is education, right? Like it's one thing when we build a tool and then like you can only disseminate that tool. But when you can disseminate a tool that's education, right, then it can kind of be paid forward in that way that you're talking about. The trickle-down effect. There's so much potential for it. So it's really exciting to be doing that. Melissa and I were at at a a music festival called Outside Lands this past weekend, watching lots of different drummers. Mm -hmm. And so it's so cool, yeah, to think about, you know, what were their mechanics. And yeah, and watching them, you know, sometimes they do a solo. You're just like, you're like, how is this like happening? And they're stripping sweat, like thinking about the (laughs) metabolic cost of drumming. Like, (laughs) Yeah, it, it really is fascinating. Like the motor control involved is really 
really mind boggling when you get into things like limb independence and they can be playing, you know, different time signatures. I don't know how familiar either of you are with music, but like different, you know, timing of rhythms with all four limbs. They're doing different, completely different things, but it's all working together. And it's, it's amazing that they can make that happen. I don't know how they control that up there. I'd love to do an EEG on drummer. At some point, I was trying to learn my first song on the drums a couple months ago. And, you know, you're like, it's one thing to like get the arms going. And then, like, your hands, yeah, are playing different beats. And then it's like, okay. And then you bring in your feet. And I'm like, okay, this is just like, this is too much. <laughs> I'm like, wow, I just have so much respect. Like, how do you, like, you're saying, hold so many different time signatures in your head at the same time. And they're all, yet they're all synced in some way. It's just amazing. I've almost learned a song, a very beginner song, but it's, I feel very cool playing the drums. <laughs> I don't know if I look as cool. I think I look pretty stiff. But I'm curious, from your work now, are there specific recommendations then that you found or that you share in your education for drummers that for them to keep in mind to avoid future injury or to perhaps take care of current or ongoing injuries? One thing I come across a lot is warm-ups, warming up and cooling down, and how rarely drummers do those things. Or they'll, they'll warm up, but it'll be, you know, a little bit on a practice pad, but they don't, you know, a drummer will start a show without having done like a full body warm up and, you know, giving them this data. It's like, what you're doing is on par with like professional athletes. You're getting your heart rate up so high. You need to prep your body and your systems for that. So trying to teach them to, you know, you got to do some jogging on the spot, some dynamic stretching and then get on your practice pad to warm up. So working on that, you know, some recommendations about setting up the drum set. I've talked to several drummers who have had shoulder injuries from putting their crash cymbals out really, really high and far away. So they have these like huge arm and forceful arm motions. So they've got really like non-neutral postures, a lot of force going through it. And so I recommend them to bring stuff in that's closer so that you're maximizing the efficiency of your movement, setting up your muscles to be at their best mechanical advantage, producing, you know, the most force for the least effort and doing it in a way that's not putting all that force through a joint that's like at full extension or, you know, at the end range of motion, that sort of thing. And one, actually, it's really neat because one of the one of the sort of tenets of playing the drums is, you know, you want to play relaxed. You don't want extra muscle tension. You don't want to be like death grip on the sticks and things like that. And now with the vibration data, having, you know, even more sort of it's, there's another reason for them to do that. Like not only does it feel better and sound better, but you're actually protecting yourself when you play stiff, you're allowing more of that vibration to transmit into your arm, which could cause some problems. So by playing more relaxed, it's just one more reason why it's better for you to do that. So your teachers were right. <laughs> wow, thanks. That's super helpful to all our drummers out there, <laughs> our listeners who are drummers. And I loved what you said early in that you're explaining to them they're expending the amount of energy like a professional athlete would. And on your website, you talk about viewing drummers through multiple perspectives, right? As athletes and as workers. And so we thought that was really interesting. And we'd just like you to like touch a little more on that. Like how do those views differ and what does it mean in the context of designing these experiments and performing them? Basically, the way I kind of envision it is taking the principles from sports science and from occupational biomechanics and applying those to drummers. 
is essentially what it is. So when I'm like, for example, the vibration study, you know, there are multiple studies looking at, you know, hand-arm vibration associated with industrial tasks, whether that's, you know, hammering or using power tools or jackhammer vibration, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? There's there, all of that is out there. So it's not like, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. I'm taking what's already known and saying, well, what does that look like in this context? And just a lot of the things that we've done are things that people have already done in industrial or athletic settings. And we're just doing the same thing, but with drummers to show that, you know, yeah, what you're doing is very physical and very physical things <laughs> have consequences, but there are also ways to prepare your body to handle those physical things. So, you know, by showing them that their heart rates are, are getting up there with professional athletes, it's like, okay, you need to think about yourself in this context. You know, you may not consider yourself an athlete, but you're demanding something of your body that is athletic and it needs to be prepared to do that. So, Professional athletes don't just get out on the court or the field or the ice and play their game. And they also don't just practice their sport-specific skills. They do strength and conditioning. They do a lot of things. They see athletic therapists. They do a lot of stuff to prepare their bodies to handle their sport. And yours as a drummer, it's no different. So yes, you need to play your shows. Yes, you need to practice your chops. But yes, you also need to do some physical conditioning and probably see an athletic therapist to deal with any issues that you're having or, you know, potentially for some taping that might help for a show or, you know, things like that. So it's sort of just getting people to shift their perspective about, you know, being a musician is both an athletic and occupational task. And so that's the perspective that we're trying to bring. Melissa, I keep thinking about all the ways that we could use the Sage Motion system for movement training through wearable haptic feedback. Me too. It made me think about our in-lab interventions to improve gait symmetry for stroke patients and how awesome it would be if they could access that from their own homes. Definitely. It is so portable, easy to use, and could be personalized for different people. It was so nice to hear from the team too, directly in our personal demo. Yeah, and our listeners can sign up for their own demo at sagemotion.com demo and write boom in the comment box. And then let us know your ideas for using it. So when you're saying seeing athletic trainers, I'm wondering if athletic trainers would be prepared to take care of a, a drummer, a musician who needs this type of injury or has like fighting against this type of injury, I guess. It'd be really amazing to see. Uh, actually, when we were preparing for your interview, I was thinking about also like marching band and other musicians who really probably could use athletic trainers. But then I think about the athletic trainers at school and, you know, it's for more of the the other sports, I guess. And um, it's interesting to think about having athletic trainers for drummers and musicians? So I have heard anecdotally from several drummers and just musicians in general that it's historically been hard to find medical professionals who understand the demands of various, not just drummers, like musicians in general. So performing arts medicine has been like a growing field over the last 40 or so years, basically focusing on getting physical therapists, physicians, occupational therapists, whoever it is, you know, specific training and understanding in the performing arts and how those, what those physical demands look like, because it's, it's not useful to like, you would never have a physiotherapist who told an athlete like, well, you've got some tendonitis. You should probably just stop playing. 
yet drummers and musicians come up against that all the time. So over the years, the field has been trying to raise awareness on that. And there are more and more clinicians who are gathering skill. Actually, the Performing Arts Medicine Association offers a like continuing education, a training certificate in performing arts medicine, essentially. They offer it twice a year. And so practitioners can, and they offer a few different versions, actually. There's some for health practitioners. And there's also some for instructors, music educators, to learn about, you know, more that they can then translate to their students. But yeah, that has historically been a problem. And so hopefully this, you know, that's maybe another aspect of where this research can go is in helping the allied health professions learn more about, you know, these issues in these musicians. And again, not just drummers, but and not just musicians and all performing artists, dancers, you know, uh, Foley artists, all kinds of different aspects of performing arts that, you know, they have very significant physical demands and we need to find ways to help them work through them and go get back to their profession the way we do athletes. I love like hearing like, You've got such a good holistic picture of of the challenges here, the opportunities here, and the people here. And I'm curious, it's clear we talked about your technical background before and how interdisciplinary that is. I'm curious where like the motivation to do the, this type of work came from. Like why drummers, why musicians? Uh, where did that come from? So this goes back to my where it sort of fell into my lap. So the the short story is that it came from a Twitter interaction. One of my favorite bands is Dream Theater. And several years ago, you know, I, I followed their members online on Twitter and this and that. I had actually, my husband and I had been to one of their shows and I was watching their drummer, Mike Mangini, play during the show and thinking, oh my gosh, like how cool would it be if I could get him to come to my lab and I could hook him up with stuff, which is like, yes, I am that big of a nerd that I think about this stuff during concerts. So I'm thinking about these things. And then like a week later, Mike tweeted something about being sore from playing the drums and, but not because he's hurt, but because it's like a boxing type workout. And I, at the time, wasn't big on social media. I was more of a like observer than contributor, but I thought this was too good to pass up. So I responded to him and said, you know, I'm, I'm a researcher at the University of Windsor. I would love to study your technique. Message me if you're interested. And he did. And so we started going back and forth with private messages. We had a Skype conversation and I was like, OK, there's could be fun. This is going to be a thing. So I started digging into the literature and I was floored. I couldn't believe that there was a handful of studies out of Scandinavian countries. There was a handful of studies by a group in Japan. And that was basically it. So I was like, how can this possibly be? <laughs> what am I missing? So I, of course, checked like four different databases to make sure I was covering my bases. And I was like, wow, there's there's literally a handful of articles on this. And most of them, if percussionists, not even just on drummers, if percussionists in general were included, there would be in a study of like 50 participants, there'd be four percussionists. And most of those were like marimba players, not drum set. So very, very, very little representation of drummers. There was one study out of the University of North Texas that included, they had, I think, 280. But their group that included drummers also included timpani players. So still not specific to drum set. So I thought, okay, I got to do something about this. So I started, you know, planning some studies. And then a few months later, Mike tweeted again about how many calories he burns during a show. So I messaged him and I was like, 
listen, you're guessing based on some other studies. I'm like, I've got this, this stuff in my lab. Why don't we throw it on during a show and we can get your actual numbers? And so he was into it and I got to do this. <laughs> and, it, and then the drummer for the Canadian rock band, The Tea Party, Jeff Burroughs, lives in Windsor. And he heard about what was going on and wanted to do it too. And so we released his data around the same time as we released Mike's and the response was huge. And so we just turned it into, I turned it into this study. And now I'm, I think, 41 drummers deep at this point with, I think I've got three more on the books for sure. And several more who were like, oh, I'll do it, but I don't know when we're coming around. So um, yeah, it's just kind of snowballed. So that just became what I do. (laughs) What a dream. It's pretty outstanding. I still, when I, you know, when I get to do data collection at live shows, because I've always been a music fan, I've always loved going to see live music. And so getting to see the shows from side stage at some of the venues that I've been to like multiple times as a spectator is, it's pretty cool. And getting to learn about the inner workings of like production and touring and that sort of thing has really just been so interesting. I Like nothing related to biomechanics at all, but just really interesting things that I get to learn about now too is, is really cool. So, and I've met so many awesome people through it all. So that's, it's just been so much fun. That is awesome. I know Hannah and I both love live music. So we're like, wow, this is, a, this is so <laughs> cool to like find that bridge. And then all of the other amazing things that you learn. And then fast forward a little bit. And just last summer, you were awarded one of 12 recipients of the Grammy Museum Grant Award or Grant Program. So congratulations on that. So that's an award. It funds music research and sound preservation. And I'm curious what the process of being part of that unique funding opportunity has been like. It was like any other research funding opportunity. I can't remember how I came across it exactly. I think it was one of my early searches about, you know, how to get funding for music related research. But it just it took me a while to gather enough like baseline data to be able to make the case for getting funding. It really worked in much the same way. You know, there was a a letter of intent that had to be submitted and then they shortlisted candidates from there. I don't remember, actually, didn't you tell us, I don't know how many people were asked to provide the full application. So you had to submit by, I think, November 1st in February or late January. I found out that I was shortlisted. I had until late February to submit the full application. And then I found out in June of, I guess it would have been 2021, that I had been awarded the funding. So that was very exciting. I was just going to say, it's yeah. so cool. You essentially got a Grammy. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, do you get yeah. a little award a little. Yeah. <laughs> I was a little sad that I didn't, but I still tell people that I won a Grammy. You can't take that away from me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you can't. And now today we spoke with someone who won a Grammy. So. Probably the first biomechanist <laughs> to win a Grammy. <laughs> I honestly don't know, but maybe. Well, we really appreciate, like, we've looked through your social media accounts, and we noticed you have this phrase, aspiring imperfectionist in the bio of these accounts. And you know at Boom that we love humanizing research. You know, science is so human and especially failure. So we're wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about this term aspiring imperfectionist and what it means for you. I think like many, maybe most people who get into academia and go really far with it, I certainly have perfectionist tendencies. And, you know, I'm I'm sure you know that those can be really detrimental to your mental health and your well-being, and they certainly have been in my case. And so through my, my journey of trying to unlearn some of those perfectionist tendencies that I don't remember where I 
I think I was, it was probably some self-help book that I read that was using the term imperfectionist. And so I, I came up with aspiring imperfectionist. And I, I put it there as more of a reminder for me of like, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be really good. <laughs> you know, like there's no such thing as perfect. But actually, it's really funny. I, I won't say who it was that said this, because I don't know if they'd want it, you know, out loud. But in, it was in a conversation with the lead singer and songwriter for a, a band that so my husband comes with me to a lot of the data collections as my research assistant sometimes. And uh, he was asking, he likes to ask people, you know, how do you know, because he's a musician as well. He likes to know, like, how do you know when a song is done? Like when you've written a song, how do you know when it's like ready? And one of the people he asked of this said something to the effect of, you know, you, you do your best, you, you put things out there. And at some point you just have to say, F it, the essence is there and let it go. And I was like, that is the energy that I need to bring <laughs> to every paper, every <laughs> abstract. I was like, that is so great because it's true. It's never going to be like perfect and done. So you just have to get it to where it's like, yep, this is essentially where I want it to be and let it go from there. Because no matter how like much you try, how much you might think it's perfect, you're going to send your paper to review. And we all know reviewer number two is going to have the laundry list of things they want for you to do. So it's never going to be like, yeah, this is great. We're going to publish it as is. Like, I don't, I don't know anybody who that's happened to. It certainly hasn't happened to me. Well, I love that. I don't know if you're referring to um, this. So there's a book called The Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown, I believe. And that's a, I just wanted to give a little pitch to that book because mm. I think that also highlighted what you were speaking on. And um, that was a book that I really enjoyed reading. Yeah, it probably was that one because I have read Brene Brown. So now that I'm thinking about it, that's probably where the term imperfectionist came from. So yeah. Kind of on that note, could you tell us about a time where perhaps you felt like you failed or a time that you felt particularly imperfect (laughs) and what you learned from it? It's funny because academia is such a judgmental space in so many ways. Like everything we do is judged. If you're teaching, your students evaluate your teaching. When you go out for tenure or promotion, someone's about like judging you, basically. Your students are judging you. Your tenure committee's judging you. Your reviewers for grant applications, papers, abstracts, everybody is judging you all the time. So it's hard not to feel like that a lot. So I don't know that I have necessarily like a particular time when, because there's probably several, but I've through the years tried to view these as like, remember that they're learning experiences that like most mistakes are not catastrophic and going to lead to the end of your career. (laughs) They're just opportunities to learn something and to, you know, do better next time. And so trying to remind myself of that when I do start to feel the weight of, of those things is that you know, yes, this is, you know, the judgment of others, but they may not always have all the information or that's, you know, that's their perception, but there are also, all right, maybe here's one specific example, student evaluations of your teaching. You tend to see the ones that are like, you know, this was awful, but you have to remember that there, you know, in a class of a hundred students, there are like two or three that might have something like that to say. There are two or three who might say this was like the best course I ever took and Dr. Rezar is the best teacher ever. And then there's like 95 of them who just had a decent enough experience and have nothing to say. Like it, it was okay. And like you don't, but you like forget about that. And so trying to focus on the like the radio silence is probably from people who are like, yeah, it was fine. 
like it, it wasn't the best course I ever took, but it wasn't the worst one I ever took. And just like remembering that, <laughs> you know, you're probably somewhere in the middle for most people, but you can still learn something from the others. Like, you know, it's not to say you dismiss it necessarily, but you know, you don't have to laser focus on, on those extremes that, you know, that's such a good point. I was two boys I used to babysit for here. Now they're all they're grown up and they're about to go to college. And they we were reviewing some reviews about professors. They were trying to figure out what courses to take. And one was just like, I hate this professor and this professor hates me. And that's just <laughs> what it is. And I was just like, oh, my, if I ever got a review like that, I don't know how I would cope. But at the same time, kind of what you're saying in terms of, you know, there's always going to be those and sometimes it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with, you know, what you're doing or your class or you and, and trying to not, I think, take some of those comments so personally. But like you're saying, kind of take what you want from those, what you can learn from it, and then letting the rest. <laughs> yeah, like try to distill, because underneath the the anger and the frustration is someone's personal experience. And so trying to wade through that to find like, okay, what was it about this, this thing that was particularly a problem for this person and see if there's anything like in some cases, it might not have been anything I can do about it. And unfortunately that just translated into a, a bad experience for them. But in some cases there might be like, oh, you know, maybe if I did change this or that policy or this or that assignment, maybe it would be a better experience for everyone. And, you know, you might be able to find something in it. But yeah, trying to remove the emotion from it and just look at what, you know, what, what can I actually take from this? It's hard to do, but you try to remind yourself to do it. And just as we're like, so not good at like feeling statistics, right? We feel those extremes, but like the stati- like it tells us that 95% is <laughs> such an overwhelming. <laughs> well, I think we're coming up on our last question, but first, how can people follow you in your work? The best place to follow is social media, especially for the the live energy expenditure stuff. We we post all of that like regularly as they happen, but I do post about study announcements and publications and things like that there. And my uh, my link tree to, that it has links to you know conference posters, papers, whatever. That's those are in my social media bio. So my handle for all of them is at Dr. Nadia Azar. That's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter are the primary ones. I'm slowly dabbling into TikTok or I'm going to try. And that one's also at Dr. Nadia Azar. So that's that's the best place. I do have a faculty web page, but I don't have as much control over that as I do like my link tree. So that's the best place to find links to new publications or, you know, things like that. And those are all on my social media. We'll put that link in the show notes. All right. And so for our last question, what are you most excited about for the future of biomechanics? I don't know. They're so excited about or maybe slightly daunted by too, but there's so much potential for advancement with technology. You know, every time you think you're at the peak of it, something else comes along, you know, things like and this is well beyond my wheelhouse, but like AI or, you know, even augmented reality for putting people in simulation, simulations in the lab and things like that. I just think there's so much potential technology wise. I also love where things are going with, I just got a, I saw on Twitter, a like a, somebody, a colleague at, I think McMaster had posted, they're looking for people to do a study where you need someone to videotape you with like your iPhone, but doing certain, like a squat, a lift or this or that, and send it to them because they're working on this like motion capture stuff 
markerless through an iPhone. So, you know, getting, you know, taking what we know about all those things and now being able to distill it down into like your pocket computer to take it anywhere and have it be reasonably accurate and valid is so exciting because it opens up so many possibilities for so many sports that and, and other movements that are really hard to recreate in the lab. Like, for example, so we use the XN's motion capture system in my lab and XN's, you know, they've been able to get data on ski jumpers, on rowers out on the water. Like none of that is replicable in a lab. So, you know, to have, but and even the XN's is great and as portable as it is, it's still, you know, there's still the IMUs, sorry, inertial measurement units, <laughs> you know, the monitoring devices that you have to attach and things like that. So, you know, to be able to distill it down even further, but still have it be accurate and reliable, you know, is really exciting. And I think it'll, it'll open that many more doors answering that many more questions and helping that many more people. Yeah. That's, I think what's really exciting for us too. And just the impact that technology like that can have. But then it's also amazing to see all of the many different applications and uses for it as it expands. And um, I think this has been such a fun interview and application that we hadn't talked about before, but is very important. And I think also has so many learnings that can be translated to so many other areas. So we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about your work. It was really nice to meet you. And yeah, it's really, really exciting things that you're doing. And we hope that uh, maybe we'll we'll have to come uh, collect data with you. Sometime. Yeah, if you ever need an extra hand, if your husband wants a break. <laughs> there is a long list of people who have told me. <laughs> well, thank you both for inviting me to be on, on the podcast. It was really fun to talk to you both and, uh, you know, happy to field questions and, and that sort of thing. If anyone hears this and, and whatnot, they can reach out to me through social media and, you know, that sort of thing. But Thank you for doing this and, and bringing biomechanics out into the world. It's exciting. <laughs> yes, we love doing it. So thank you. So thank you so much to Nadia Azar for taking the time to be on Boom. If you enjoyed the interview and learned something from the episode, I know we did. <laughs> we both enjoyed it and learned things. <laughs> Make sure to let us know and also share this episode with someone you think would find some value in it. Before we wrap up, let's share some research fails. Let's do it. So we mentioned Hannah and I, and you might have heard before, we like to dance <laughs> from time to time. We like going to live music. Um, the first fail, I guess, would be we recently went to a Miley Cyrus-themed party, <laughs> which also should be no surprise to anyone listening. Yeah, as Miley was in the episode. <laughs> Miley's in the episode, and we're dancing so we're just so in so into it into it that I just threw my phone straight into the ground and it shattered into <laughs> a million pieces um and I had to get a new phone so that was a fail better your phone broke than like a piece of your body right like there was no biomechanics really there injury. was no no one was physically harmed in the in the throwing <laughs> of the phone, throwing of the phone. <laughs> so that was good it's just you know it's always just a such a hassle to set up a new device but it's true i'm lucky that i could get a new one and everything's fine melissa's now. being generous i think that i hit her arm and that's what so what had happened was fall. hannah well no i was taking a video and then uh which was my bad i should have just been in the music and then yeah 
It happens. We bumped arms, and anyway. It's good because we enjoyed the rest of Miley, and... Yeah, I didn't even notice it was now we had a fail until the next day, sure. so... It's true, yeah. Because of the cover on it. But then I was like, why are these tiny pieces of glass? <laughs> yeah, Melissa texted me, like, there are sh- tiny shards of glass in my hand. <laughs> And so, then recently we hung out. Yeah, we hung out at Outside Lands. At Outside Lands, yeah. Which is this huge festival that happens in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Lots of different music, musicians, sorry, and different artists around. Green Day was there, notably some other big people. Says Post Malone. Post Malone. Yeah. Weezer. Parcels was probably my favorite. That was a good band. Yeah. Yeah. Local Parcels. natives. There oh, yeah, local natives is great. Good people, yeah. So we had a lot of fun there. Probably many fails, just kind of trying to find the music, trying to find each other, the stages, trying to find each other <laughs> among the thousands of people that were in in the festival, <sighs> trying to find water. <laughs> trying to find water, that was a fail. Yeah, I was yeah. very thirsty. That was an issue. <laughs> Everyone stay hydrated. Anyway, it was a great time. So if you have a fun festival story, music story, please share it with us. You know, you don't have to just share research fails. We love you <laughs> Or yeah, come to a festival or us. invite us and yeah. we'll come to your to the festival near you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We so appreciate it. We also appreciate the International Society of Biomechanics, the Stanford Neuromuscular Biomechanics Laboratory for helping to keep Boom going. Yes. And we're thankful for Peter Washington for the music in Boom. And if you would like to submit a research fail or suggest a person to interview or a topic, Get involved with Boom in some way. Make sure to send us an email at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com. It's a long one, so if it gets confusing, you just go to our website and send us a message through there. <laughs> Although it's biomechanicsonourminds.com. So it's true. It's really, You're going to have to write it out one way or the other. Or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at biomechanicsoom. And make sure to check out Boom on YouTube. I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. One, a two, one, two, three. Biomechanics of our minds. <laughs>